I will be very brief, which is not my want. My name is Paul Holdengraber, and I'm the director of public programs here at the New York Public Library, which used to be called Live from the. It used to be called Public Education Programs, and now is thankfully called Live from the New York Public Library. I highly recommend that at the end of the program you write your name down on our email list so that you can find out all the other wonderful events we're doing in the near future. On the 8th of May, we have a program on eavesdropping with James Risen and Jeffrey Rosen and many other wonderful people talking about uh, the NSA and um, some of the very troubling things that are going on there. It is my great pleasure to thank most wholeheartedly Penn and Mike Roberts, Esther Allen, and of course Salman Rushdie, the Instituto Cervantes, most particularly Antonio Munoz Molina, the Consulate General of Spain, the Hungarian Cultural Center with the wonderful Jakob Orsos. And now I will turn over without further ado uh, the, po the podium and the moderation to Christopher Hitchen, Hitchens, who's really anything but moderate. He's a wonderful instigator. And I hope that tonight he will live up to that wonderful reputation. Christopher, your turn. Thank you. Uh, please hold your applause. All praise belongs to Allah alone. Um, thank you, Paul, um, of all the introductions I've heard. That's certainly the most recent. Um, thank you, Mr. President, my last chance to address Salman in this way, as I've long wanted to do. Uh, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I hope I can say brothers and sisters, and I'll have to say comrades and friends for favoring us with your attendance on this incredibly beautiful evening, um, I'm in the awkward position of standing between you, or sitting rather, in a centrist position, uh, between unaccustomed, between you and the people you've actually come to see, but I do have a duty of thanks to uh, and introduction of them and of the subject, about which I'll be brief. The question of revolution is uh, very intimately related to the idea of whether things, as it were, revolve or not. Uh, whatever can be said about it, it, it negates all beliefs, all ideologies, all religions who feel that they have arrived at an ultimate proof or have produced a book upon which no improvement is required. As long as beliefs like that are in circulation, the word revolution will always be relevant. Everybody's favorite example, I hope, certainly mine is that of Galileo Galilei, forced by the Inquisition to recant his view that the revolution of our little planetary home uh, was uh, revolved around in its turn by the sun and his disproof of this uh, idiotic theocratic fallacy and of the threat of torture uh, to which he was put to recant it. It is said, I think it was first said by Bertolt Brecht uh, in a play, but it was said at the time that as he formally recanted and left the chamber of the Inquisition that he muttered under his breath audibly enough, uh, a poor si muove. It still moves. Um, we who believe in this don't need it to be true that he actually said this any more than we need it to be true that he actually existed. Our faith is a skeptical one. In fact, it's not a faith. But um, in that spirit, shall I say, I have here four very honorable and honored guests who have in effect tested this proposition or advanced it in one form or another. 
And I dare say I may uh, as well start from uh, left to right. Uh, Judge Garzon, how shall I say this? Uh, there was a day in London a few years ago when an ordinary British Bobby turned up at a private clinic in London and knocked on the door of a room and said uh, to its occupant, uh, excuse me, sir, are you General Augusto Pinochet of Chile? And receiving the answer, see, si, said, well, then you're nicked. Uh, your you're under arrest, and anything you might care to say will be taken down and used in evidence against you. I wish very much I had been there when that happened. And we have, uh, those of us who believe in the principle of human rights as a universal, and believe in jurisdiction as universal, believe that all torturers, all dictators, all genociders are, all of them, common enemies of humanity and can be arrested and put on trial anywhere they are, are are and always will be tremendously in debt to this extraordinarily brave Spanish judge who has done two additional favors that I know about. Uh, one is to bring the first major prosecution in a European country of Al-Qaeda, arresting and charging an entire cell of people uh, and indicting them for conspiracy, and second, making a very difficult decision, which was that of deciding that the Basque nationalist organization, ETA, had behaved in such a way in the name of revolution uh, that it should now be considered a criminal organization. This was not in Spain a very easy uh, point to make legally or morally. However, um, there are revolutions in law and in human rights and this judge, in my opinion, uh, has held a leading place in that honorable contest. Jaconda Belli brings out the, the gallant in me. How shall I say? the torrid, tempestuous, volatile Nicaragua which he per so perfectly embodies? No, that would be cheap, um, <laughs> though easy and uh, tempting. Um, I'd rather say that she's, she has taken a large part in the seismic events that swept her torrid zone in the Isthmus since 1970, was a leading sympathizer of the Sandinista movement, has since then come to make many criticisms of it, um, has registered, if you like, all these tensions and um, is about to publish a novel. I think I'm right in calling it The Scroll Seduction, which, though it sounds like The Da Vinci Code, I know isn't going to be like that. Um, to my immediate right is Jim Tomas, who uh, is considered by everyone inside and outside Hungary to be one of his country's most powerful minds. In 50 uh, years, will be celebrated and mourned and commemorated this October uh, when we, we honor the partisans and fighters of Budapest who first drove a real wedge, probably the first and the final wedge into the Soviet empire. Um, I'm particularly interested in Mr. Tomas's work because he, as well as being a, hung, a Hungarian, he spent, had to spend a number, uh, some time in Romania. And I remember particularly the way in which it was the <coughs> The, the Romanian Hungarians, or you might wish to say the Hungarian Romanians, who in 1989 put an end to the, by their revolution, uh, to the regime, not just of Ceausescu, but helped to put an end, in a sense, to Stalinism and despotism in the whole region. I had the honor to be present at some of these events in the city of Temeshwara, or as Hungarian speakers would say, Temeshvar. And the dialectic between one revolution and one society and another, I think, I hope, will be his subject. And then uh, Comrade Mechnik.
I'll be quick about this. He's the easiest. Um, if there was one emblematic intellectual of the Polish Solidarity Movement that began as the Workers' Defense Committee in his country in the mid-1970s, it was and still remains, Adam, uh, the, his contribution as a thinker and as a fighter, as a satirist, as a defiant person, um, and as a journalist uh, in his founding of the newspaper Gazeta Wyborczka, which is now the most successful newspaper in Poland, will be remembered as long as that wonderful, peaceful revolution is, is recalled. Um, I have to add to his perhaps embarrassment that when I first met Adam in 1976, when this moment was beginning, he changed my life by uttering the following remark, which is after we'd had many ideological and other discussions and discussed five different forms of Trotskyist heresy um, <laughs> among the 15 that were available to us, uh, he ended the conversation for me and changed my life by saying, Christopher, you know, whatever happens now in Eastern Europe or in Western Europe or in Spain or under fascism or the rest of the Cold War, one thing is clear to me. No ideology can be tolerated that considers the citizen to be the property of the state. I thought it was the most revolutionary remark I'd ever heard. So, I'm also going to start with Adam. And you have the honor of hearing him in simultaneous translation from the very talented Mr. Jan Gross who was himself a great contributor to the liberation of Poland. Would you like to start, Adam? I hope I didn't uh, take up too much of anyone's time in this introduction, but they deserve it. Dear Kamarat Hitchens. Dear Kamarat Hitchens. Karol Marx powiadał, że rewolucja jest akuszerką dziejów. Karl Marx used to say that revolution is the midwife of history. Ponieważ akuszerka może zdecydować o porodzie. Because a midwife can decide about how the birth will take place. To rewolucja jest tą akuszerką, która powoduje, że te porody są krwawe bardzo. So revolution is such a midwife which makes it so that the births are very bloody. Revolucja zaczyna się pięknie. Revolution begins beautifully. Jest obietnicą raju. And it promises heaven. Jest planowana i podejmowana w imię najpiękniejszych utopii. It's planned and conceived in the name of most beautiful utopias. I wszystkie akty przemocy i terroru, and all the acts of coercion and terror, które towarzyszą rewolucji, which accompany revolution, są niejako usprawiedliwione przez cel. Are usually justified by its goals. Rewolucja obiecuje nowy początek świata. Revolution promises a new beginning of the world. Rewolucja zapowiada odrzucenie przeszłości i ruszenie z posad bryły świata. It promises the throwing away of the past and moving the the world. Ja jestem z takiego kraju 
który pamięta, że jak ta bryła świata została ruszona, to już później nie mogła wrócić na na swoje miejsce. And I'm, uh, I come from a world which, from a place where, where people remember that when this uh, body of the world was moved from its place, it couldn't return to it. Że rewolucja zawsze rodzi anarchię, chaos, bezład. Anarchia zawsze rodzi pokusę dyktatury. Revolution always gives birth to anarchy, chaos and disorder, and anarchy always creates room for dictatorship. Rewolucja rozbudza nadzieję. The revolution awakes hope. Że wszyscy ludzie po rewolucji będą młodzi, piękni, mądrzy i zamożni. That all people after the revolution will be young, beautiful, wise and very wealthy. Dlatego rewolucja zawsze przynosi rozczarowanie. And that's why revolution always brings disappointment. Lev Trotsky napisał jedyś swoją kluczową książkę, którą zatytułował Zdradzona rewolucja. Otóż każda rewolucja jest zdradzona. Lew Trotsky wrote his most important book under the title of Revolution Betrayed. Well, every revolution gets betrayed. Rzecz by można, że każda rewolucja ma dwie fazy. One could say that every revolution has two phases. Pierwsza faza jest piękna, to jest walka o wolność. The first stage is very beautiful, it's the struggle for freedom. Druga faza jest obrzydliwa, to jest walka o władzę. The, the second phase is horrible, this is a struggle for power. I y, dlatego naprawdę sukcesy przynoszą tylko rewolucję niedokończoną. And that's why a, a real success comes with an unfinished revolution. Jak ktoś zapowiada że trzeba dokończyć rewolucję, to znaczy, że zapowiada nowy archipelag Goła. When somebody says, announces that the revolution has to be completed, then this is someone who announces a new Gulag archipelago. Rewolucja to jest gwałtowna, radykalna zmiana w wyniku ruchu mas. Revolution is a quick and radical change which results from mass movement. We're talking about three revolutions, which give us, which have a positive connotation. But there were also national revolutions, the Brown revolutions. Konserwatywne rewolucje. There were conservative revolutions. Jak w Iranie. Like as in Iran, for example. Gdybym zdefiniował wojnę domową Hiszpanii. If I were to define the civil war in Spain. To powiedziałbym, że dla Frankistów. I would say that for the Franco sympathizers. To była walka z komunizmem. It was a struggle against communism. Dla lewicy hiszpańskiej to była walka For the Spanish left, it was struggle with fascism. Revolucja węgierska 56 roku. Hungarian Revolution of 1956, którą pamiętam bardzo dobrze. Which I remember very well. To był wtedy pierwszy akt polityczny w moim życiu. This was the first political act in my life. Jak w szkole 
namówiłem moich kolegów, żebyśmy zbierali dziesięcioletnie dzieci pieniądze na pomoc dla Budapesztu. When I convinced my colleagues ten years old to collect money for support of Budapest. Otóż z jednej strony rewolucja węgierska była rewolucją narodową przeciwko opresji. So on one hand, Hermanian Revolution was a national revolution against Soviet oppression. Ale z drugiej strony to była rewolucja w imię socjalizmu, który się lubi. But on the other hand, it was a revolution in the name of socialism, a nice kind of socialism. Polska rewolucja, rewolucja solidarności. Polish revolution, the solidarity revolution. Była rewolucją bez utopii. Was a revolution without a utopia. To to była jedyna ze znanych mi rewolucji, która chciała po prostu normalność. This was the only revolution I know which simply wanted normality. To, 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 to była wielka koalicja przeciwko dyktaturze komunistycznej. This was a grand coalition against communist dictatorship. Ale y, y, jednocześnie w, w tym samym czasie to, to była rewolucja, która rozsadzała system. But at the same time it was a revolution which was completely exploding from inside the Soviet system. Właściwie powinniśmy być zadowoleni. So in, in effect we should be very happy. Mamy wszystko, co żeśmy chcieli. We have everything that we wanted. Gdyby, gdyby dobry Pan Bóg zapytał się 20 lat temu po Polaków, jakie są ich trzy największe marzenia. If good God asked Poles 20 years ago what are their three greatest hopes and dreams. To co Polacy by odpowiedzieli? What would they say? Po pierwsze żeby się rozpadł Związek Sowiecki. First, for the Soviet Union to collapse. Po drugie, żeby się rozwalił ustrój komunistyczny. Secondly, for the communist system to disintegrate. A po trzecie, żeby Polska znalazła się w rodzinie państw demokratycznych w Pakcie Atlantyckim i w Unii Europejskiej. And thirdly, they they would hope for Poland to become part of the coalition of European nations in NATO and in European Community. Wszystkie marzenia zostały zrealizowane. All the dreams were fulfilled. I dopiero teraz Polacy są wściekli. And only now Poles are really angry. Dziękuję za uwagę. Thank you very much. Very well. <laughs> uh, well, I don't. I don't need to add my my bravo to Comrade clearly, and and I omitted a guest in my introduction who couldn't be here with us, the very courageous uh, Russian writer Anna Politskaya, whose coverage of especially events in Chechnya has ma made her a distinguished um, contributor to all these arguments and others too. Alas, it seems that the counter-revolution um, of Vladimir Putin has not allowed her an exit visa to join us, so I, I feel I would be remiss in not honoring her by her absence. And I know Joconda doesn't want to follow Adam, and I quite see why she might not wish to, but uh, from what he said, I think it's obvious that it's her turn, because the, the Nicaraguan Revolution probably was the last one remembered at least by people in this audience that appeared to have a, a utopian and a romantic character to it, and so I think it's uh, your turn, darling. <clears throat> well, my memory of revolution 
like I could go into a litany of what revolution was for me. But I remember when I was five years old, <clears throat> and um, the first time I saw blood, I was walking uh, to buy candy to the store, and I saw this big splash on the wall. And the nanny told me that they had killed a student right there uh, two or three days before. I remember there had been a big you know, noise, and we had been, my mother had said, don't go out. And, and that, that uh, blood splash kind of stayed. It was such a shock for my young mind. And I could hear, I would hear constantly during my growing up years, all these stories of my uncles or aunts going to a rally and being clubbed, or uh, somebody who I knew being killed, or my brothers who were to, went to this rally where the opposition was trying to get uh, Somoza, our dictator, to give up his candidacy to the, to the presidency, and 300 people were killed who were peacefully demonstrating on the street. So when I began to hear the word revolution, it made total sense to me that we should have a revolution because I had uh, tried to believe in the political parties in Nicaragua. My family came from uh, you know, a tradition within the conservative party and I remember how thrilled I was when I thought I was going to be able to vote. And uh, that's when this massacre happened and everything stopped. And uh, so we had this tradition uh, against Somoza. And so uh, I began to think there is no way we can take Somoza out or we can win over Somoza through peaceful means, you know, we, they, he was always, the elections were always rigged. I mean, the Somoza dynasty had been ruling Nicaragua since 1936, and I am talking here about the 60s. And uh, they have first the father, then the first son, then the second son. So I remember when I first heard about the Sandinistas, and I was, uh, working in an advertising agency, and uh, there was all this talk about this clandestine movement, and I had heard that they were the only brave people who were opposing this regime, this horrible regime. And uh, it took me a while to join the Sandinistas because it was very scary, because I had a child. I was 20 years old. I had married very young. and. Um, I began asking myself whether it was my right to do something like that and risk my life. Uh, but then I remember one of the Sandinista guys who was trying to recruit me said to me, uh, do it for your daughter. Do you want her? If you don't do it, she is going to, do, to have to do it. You know, if you don't do it, the next generation is going to have to do it. So your daughter is going to have to do it. So we, I and many other friends of mine and people I knew and whatever began to get involved 
in this revolutionary movement that had begun like a guerrilla uh, foco, you know, like, a, like with the same idea of Fidel Castro and his people in the mountains, thinking that from the mountains it could become a, a thing that could go to the cities. But really in Nicaragua, we didn't follow that pattern because very soon it became, it became very clear that we had to use our own history as reference. And in our history, we had had a um, tradition of insurrection. So we had a, a after, you know, a long of lots of uh, struggle and tries and trial and error, we had a revolution. We had a revolution that triumphed in July of 1979. And I remember that day walking on the uh, plaza in Managua and thinking that I was, I had had the privilege of seeing my dreams come true. And I do not uh, think for a minute that that revolution was not worth it because it was a beautiful revolution. It was a very heroic revolution. People were uh, incredibly generous with everything they did and they fought this tyrant who went crazy in the last days and began to destroy its own country. I mean, it was bombing its, the, his own cities and uh, and, you know, there was a sense that we were fighting, this was like this David against Goliath. And, uh, and so the feeling we were very young that we had been able to make our dreams come true is a, is a feeling that has no equal. I think it's, it's the experience of a very special and very profound kind of human possibility of power. And, uh, and so when, when the revolution triumphed, uh, we had all these incredible plans uh, for Nicaragua. Uh, and we began to do, and the first thing we did was a beautiful thing also, which was a literacy campaign, because Nicaragua at that time had 70% illiteracy rate. And we had all the kids, 13, 14 year old, go into the mountains and to, to teach the, the people who didn't know how to read, the adults, how to read. So it was very romantic and very beautiful. And, um, and then I don't know how to say that, uh, we, you know. I'll just say it in one minute. Well, so that, make, that. Make it beautiful and ironic. Okay that, uh, well, that I'm not disappointed, that I think dreams are important. And I, I think utopia is possible. And I think the crisis we have in the world right now is a crisis of the imagination. Oh, no, you can say a bit more than that, because, <laughs> excuse me, uh, comrades, oh, no. I, I want, you were coming to the moment of, shall we say, second thoughts or disillusionment, and I think you can have 90 seconds for that. I'm serious. Well, I think it's a crisis of the imagination because we have uh, the paradigms, you know, socialism, capitalism. Obviously, there is something that is not working. You know, there is, we, we are in need 
of a solution. We are in need of a horizon that promises a more humane kind of existence for everybody, not only for the third world, which is in a sorry state, and where we, you know, 1.3 billion people live with less than $1 a day, but also for everybody who lives in the developed world, because I don't think people are humanely realized, you know, the potential that Aristotle talked about is not realized. And so I think we have a crisis of the imagination, and we are turned to, to cynicism, to scorn, and to laugh about everything that was idealistic and utopian about the dreams of mankind, and to say, you know, we have gotten to the end of history, and this dystopia we are living in is the only thing we can aspire to. Thank you very much. Well, well, I hope you'll agree with me that that was, in, in a sense, the ideal, in the Hegelian sense, the ideal counterpoint to Adam Michnik's introduction in that you cannot uh, have listened to Jaconda and thought that the revolution she aspired to was one that favored merely normality. Uh, there's clearly a teleology and a utopianism to that, and I think that, that may, those make perfect brackets for our discussion. Um, would you like to say something? I, I have not, by the way, asked people to speak on any particular topic but the present one but I'm very much hoping you will tell us what we owe to October 1956 in Budapest, at least in part. I uh, won't speak about that, but... Um, <clears throat> <clears throat> so, you've heard the witty, you've heard the moving, now comes the grim. Uh, we are after a century of counter-revolution. In the 1920s, the Russian Revolution, after various experimentations, has come to the decision that it has to build a society based on production of commodities, based on social division of labor, based on wage labor, uh, the capital relation and the money economy. After the death of hundreds of thousands of people, state capitalism was created, as indeed it was recognized already by Lenin, and uh, the uh, idea, the ideological idea of socialism got divorced from the original idea, and instead of emancipation, socialism had to become an obsession with the state, with control, and with planning, ideas that have absolutely nothing to do with the idea of socialism. Uh, a few years later, in Germany, it has proved to be necessary to launch a preventive revolution that will preclude the possibility of a revolution against the capitalist order. The counter-revolution of nationalist socialism with an ideology and the rhetoric of anti-capitalism uh, and an ideology that was anti-modernistic and modernistic at the same time succeeded in presenting capitalism with a new face. 
with a romantic, martial, and gallant face, while the romantic criticism of capitalism had always been that capitalism was craven, materialistic, cowardly, and boring. Well, now the SS was not boring, and war was not boring, and racism was not boring, and mass assassination was not boring. On the contrary, it has driven people crazy with delight. Okay. After the second Where World... is the grim bit coming? I'm just wondering. It's coming, it's coming. Because it's been too exciting up till now. Right. Exciting, yes. Well, grim is exciting for some. And after the Second World War, I won't recount history to you, um, when in one very important part of the world, to me still the most important, perhaps not the best loved, but the most important in which I happen to live, um, not Eastern Europe, my country is the former Stalin Empire. I've met a Chinese mathematician in the 80s in Boston, in a very boring campus party. And we started to talk about our childhoods. And it turned out that we had absolutely identical childhoods. We read the same books uh, by Arkady Gaidar and Valentin Katayev and so on and so forth about Zoya and Shura. If there are any East Europeans here, they know what I'm talking about. And, or Chinese. And, <clears throat> But my childhood has nothing to do with the childhood of an Austrian with whom I am supposed to share a sense of Central Europe. That's nonsense. I'm sharing something with Russians, with Chinese, with North Koreans, with Poles. That's my country for better or for worse. Well, in this part of the world, many revolutionary event have events have taken place. What had happened in 56? In 56, People went onto the streets to demonstrate. What did they want? We know what they wanted, because they said so. Revolutions are loquacious. Revolutionaries talk a great deal. Not only are they shooting, less that, they're talking a great deal. What did they want? What did they want? Well, first of all, what did they not want? They did not want a return to pre-1945 semi-feudal Catholic authoritarianism. That was clear. Second, they did not want privatization and the abandonment of uh, social property. Thirdly, they wanted the socialized economy to be managed not by the centralized state, but by the workers themselves in the form of uh, uh, workers' councils. They wanted the Soviet troops to get out, and they did not want the American troops to get in. Neutrality, workers' councils, democratic socialism. This was what people wanted, and this is what they haven't ever got. In 89, well, that's the revolution in which I participated. And uh, it was my turn. You know, my parents have been communists disappointed communists, of course. Well, it was in, after 89, it was my turn to be disappointed. Uh, it was my, our, my generation's turn to commit the same mistakes as our forebears have always committed. And 
after having won the battle. And from a little marginal group, we had become, for a little episodic moment, the leaders of the country. I had to realize that we were very much hated, that living standards plummeted, that public morals have plummeted, that uh, sadness, chaos, nostalgia, and a hatred of the new order was taking in. And I found myself as an apologist for an unpopular social order I helped create. Well, I never thought I, I, I would be in this position. But because I'm a coward, because I have no heroism in me, I decided to join the majority. I decided to be a dissident again. I decided to turn against the order I helped create, and therefore, in my cowardly fashion, to regain my inner peace, to the extent I'm capable of such a thing. But, and, uh, and this is what is happening. The revolution, like always, seems to be an event of the future. It does not seem an event of the past, even of my own past. Last word. Last word, not about revolution, about literature. Because we are in a, a bit in a confessional mode. Uh, I will make a confession. Uh, in the early morning of 1974, in February, um, some people have uh, hammered on my door. Um, it was in the time-honored fashion. It was 4.30 a.m. This is when they come, right? And indeed, it was they. It was they in the long leather trench coats, uh, in their hats, and with their rough manners. And of course, then the usual interrogations uh, followed, and I was uh, kept at the headquarters for a few days, and so on and so forth. You know what was the most interesting about this? And then they released me. Nothing untoward happened to me. You know, that every gesture and every word I knew from literature already. <laughs> there was not a single phrase that I have not read in Arthur Kessler, in Solzhenitsyn, in Alexander Watt, and the vast literature of 20th century oppression. My experience, my first-hand experience at the hands of the Romanian Securitate was totally second-hand. <laughs> and complete, complete with the uh, captain's immortal words to me. Why are you looking at me like that? Why cannot you people recognize that we are human beings as well? And I said, uh, okay, this is something you can look up in Solzhenitsyn's Cancer's Hospital, <laughs> chapter six. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, went, I went home and my then wife asked me, well, wh well, what happened? And I said, you know. I said, how do I know? But you are somebody addicted to novels, so you know. <laughs> so nothing new happened. And even since nothing new happened, what had happened in Eastern Europe? From one version of capitalism 
dictatorial state capitalism, we went over to market capitalism, and you know, with the same ruling class, with the absolutely same ruling class, you know, Trotsky was mentioned here, poor old Lev Davidovich said uh, before the ice pick did its counter-revolutionary work in him, said the following, that I, 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 Lev Davidovich, I cannot believe that the Soviet system is state capitalism until somebody won't prove to me that state property now managed by the new class will or can be inherited. Lev Davidovich, it was. If I may interject personal note, I may be becoming a centrist and a moderator because I have to say that I've just listened to a speech and I agree with every word of it, that never happens. <laughs> I might add, for your delectation, but you, you may already know it, but when the, the great Hungarian Marxist, uh, George Lukács, was deported from Hungary after 56, having been Minister of Education in the, in the government, uh, imprisoned in a castle in Romania for a while, not told why he was there, or for how long he would stay, uttered the cryptic remark, which must have cost him a lot, so Kafka was a realist after all. <laughs> the struggle against cliché is partly a revolutionary struggle. Um, I must also add that Count Otto von Habsburg, now a member of the European Parliament for Bavaria, Christian Democrat, because he can't go back to Austria or Hungary, because he won't renounce the family title, was recently told that everyone in his committee was going to attend the Austria-Hungary match in the European soccer playoffs and said, oh, how funny, who are we playing? Uh, <laughs> you, you get one chance in your life as a counter-revolutionary to say a thing like that. Now, when I was uh, discussing Trotskyism and other matters with Comrade Michnik and others, there was a phrase, well, there are, these are only bourgeois liberties. Some people would say liberty, justice, law, open government, transparency. These are, these are not the real struggle. The, uh, these are the, the bourgeois liberties. Um, I think that Judge Garzon has probably proved that that was an empty uh, way of thinking about the real content of the law and impartiality and justice. So I'm, I'm very honored, as I hope you are, to have him give us the last word. Su senoria, senor. Gracias. Thank you. Bueno, yo pertenezco a un estamento que es el judicial que no se caracteriza precisamente por ser muy revolucionario. De modo que quizás desde esa perspectiva se comprenda un poco mejor lo que voy, lo que voy a decirles. Well, I happen to belong to a branch of the government uh, which is the judiciary, which is not really um, considered that revolutionary. And from that perspective, I think you'll understand better what I'm going to say. Es más, yo creo que siempre el Poder Judicial estuvo de parte de aquellos que oprimían al que se rebelaba o al que trataba inicialmente de luchar por la revolución. De los que oprimen, sí. 
I think that the judiciary was always on the side of those who oppressed and who were, go, were trying to oppress those who were rebelling. El caso español, el caso español fue paradigmático porque eh, la justicia fue precisamente la gran ausente en la revolución pacífica de 1976 a 1982 y fue la justicia la que estuvo muy presente antes de esa fecha precisamente reprimiendo cualquier tipo de disidencia dentro de los últimos momentos del franquismo como había hecho durante 40 años. Um, the case of Spain was paradigmatic because the justice system was precisely the major party that was absent in the Pacific Revolution that took place in Spain from 1976 to 1982. And, the just, and that was the justice system that had been very much present before as it repressed dissidents during the final moments of the 40 years of the Francoist regime. Durante esos años del franquismo y posterior, durante la democracia, por una especie de, de obvia connivencia en, el primer, en la primera parte y por una especie de amnesia uh, inducida en la segunda, jamás se planteó el tema de la exigencia de responsabilidades por los crímenes de lesa humanidad de los primeros tiempos del franquismo. During those first years of the Frankist regime and afterwards under democracy, because of a sort of obvious um, connivance uh, in the first uh, years, in the first section, and of induced amnesia in, under the, in the democratic period, uh, the possibility of pressing charges for crimes against humanity of the initial, in, during the initial years of Francoism was never considered. De hecho, ese es uno de los grandes capítulos pendientes todavía en, en España y es eh, el dar una respuesta a ese periodo oh, desde el punto de vista judicial. As a matter of fact, um, that is still one of the incomplete subjects in today in, in Spain. That is, providing response from the judiciary, from the judicial point of view, to that period. Yo viví la historia de la revolución del 36 y la historia de la guerra civil a través de una de las formas de historia que más eh, existen o que más positivos resultados dan en las distintas sociedades, la historia contada. Y la segunda revolución, la de 1976, la viví en propia carne dentro de, unos, de uno de los sectores que tuvo una gran relevancia junto con el político, el de los obreros, es decir, el de los estudiantes, ya que estaba uh, cursando los años de leyes previos al inicio de mi carrera judicial. I lived through the revolution of 1936, the Spanish Civil War, uh, through one of those ways, manifestations of history, which give the most positive results. That is, history recounted. 
And the second revolution in 1976, I experienced firsthand in my own flesh um, as part of one of the most important sectors that participated in the revolution, together with the politicians, the workers. I was a student as I was um, finishing my law degree before entering the uh, career path to the judiciary. La primera al portavoz, en la primera al portavoz que me acercó a esa historia contada fue un, un hermano de mi madre que había sido comisario político del ejército republicano en, durante la guerra, condenado tres veces a muerte y me contó y me hizo vivir la frustración de la revolución. Hay quien dice que todas las revoluciones se pierden y se ganan las contrarrevoluciones. Este era el pensamiento de este, de este buen hombre que me transmitió durante tantos años de historia contada del franquismo y de la guerra civil. The first person who served as a spokesperson for this um, revolution, that is the revolution of 1936, was a brother of my mother uh, who had been a uh, political commissioner in the Republican Army. He had been uh, sentenced to death three times, and what he conveyed to me was the frustration of revolution. What he would say was, all revolutions are lost, and all contra-revolutions, counter-revolutions are won. That was the recounted, the narrated history of Francoism in the Civil War that he transmitted to me. In 1975, todos celebramos cuando Franco murió. El impulso de aquellos días nos hacía luchar por una ruptura democrática. Eh, todos pensábamos que era posible y que eh, podríamos conseguir esa purificación de los 40 años de franquismo. Pero, por otra parte, había dos o uno un problema latente que creo que fue el que determinó que la transición española fuese una revolución pacífica y era el miedo no tanto a la dictadura sino a la guerra civil, a que la guerra civil se reprodujera. Ese miedo a la guerra civil hizo que eh, se aceptaran planteamientos que en otro caso no hubiese sido posible asumir. All of us celebrated Franco's death in 1975. Uh, the impulse, the momentum of those days um, ma made us struggle and try to make a clean break and establish a democratic regime. We thought it was possible. We thought that we would be able to achieve the purification of 40 years of Francoism. But on the other hand, there were two problems. One problem that was latent, and that problem determined, um, was responsible for ensuring that the Spanish transition was a peaceful one. It wasn't so much a question of dictatorship. It was a question that there would be a new civil war, a reproduction of the civil war, and that was what made it possible for points of view and approaches that in other situations would have been impossible to accept were accepted. Eh, 15 años después de aquella revolución pacífica, 
Eh, yo tuve ocasión de iniciar una muy grata amistad con el que fue presidente del gobierno de la transición, Adolfo Suárez. Y cuando discutíamos de cuál era la, posi la posición de los estudiantes y de la oposición en general frente al intento de reforma pacífica que él en la transición española y lo mismo que pudieron acabar con ella, también consiguieron someterse a la nueva legalidad. Quizás para mí hay un punto de inflexión fundamental y es el intento de golpe de Estado del 23 de febrero de 1981. Of the transition administration in Spain at the time, Adolfo Suarez. Uh, and we discussed the position of the students and the opposition, uh, the people, these, the students in the opposition who were opposed to the peaceful attempts at reform that Suarez was proposing. And what he said to me was, Baltasar, we did what we could. I managed uh, to accomplish uh, a great feat. Everybody hated me, and that's why they respected me. And, and, that, and if we hadn't done it that way, it would have been impossible. He told, Suarez told me that there were times when he, had, he was on the verge of physical confrontation with members of the military. The military had a very important role in, this, in the Spanish trans, transition. They could have put an end to it, but they submitted to the new legal order. And I think that the turning point was the attempted coup d'etat of February 23, 1981. De la clase política de aquellos principios revolucionarios que les llevaron al acuerdo, al diálogo, al entendimiento. Y en definitiva, han pecado al final de no oh, contribuir a una verdadera educación democrática del pueblo español, olvidándose de esa entrega y transformándose en una especie de máquinas de ganar elecciones sin tener en cuenta los intereses de los ciudadanos. Quizás ese es uno de los puntos oscuros de la transición que nos enlaza con el día de hoy. Mucho final. La transición española se ha convertido en un modelo que es muy cito como una forma de movimiento de la democracia, quite a number of errors, and there were victims. I mentioned the victims of the Frankist regime. And over the course of those years, I believe that the po political class has tended to forget those revolutionary principles that it espoused initially, the principles of agreement, dialogue, and understanding. They did not contribute to tr a true democratic education of the populace, and they became election-winning machines that didn't take into consideration the interests of the citizenry. That is one of the dark points of the transition. 
Well, comrades, I hope you agree with me that you've been very fortunate in hearing from four extremely serious, uh, but not too solemn, uh, people on this important subject. We can stay together until 10 o'clock by that clock. Uh, at 9.30, I propose to pass the uh, authority back to the hall, as I think would only be proper in such a discussion. Uh, but until then, I think we have a couple of points that might be mentioned. Uh, there is the idea of religion uh, as a revolutionary force, which we, no one has yet mentioned. Um, and I want to ask briefly each of the panelists whether any of them has any belief in a religious salvation or any form of it. That will be my first question. There is then the matter of revolution trahi, revolutions betrayed, and revolution manqué, revolutions that didn't quite make it. I, I would be surprised if no one had anything to say on that point, but in the spirit of internationalism, I want to ask Adam Micknick this um, first. Uh, when he and I first met, and he was uh, trying to work out how to bring down the dictatorship in Poland, he told me that one of his models was the extraordinary evolution of civil society in Franco's Spain, the, the, the growth of a society within the carapace of the dictatorship and so forth. And since we have this unusual chance to cross-fertilize as internationalists, I'd like to ask him how, in fact, the Spanish example did inform him in what went forward in Poland in the subsequent years. In 1976, I wrote a piece, an article, which, uh, in which I argued that Poland should follow Spain's road. It, 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 it applied simultaneously to the proposition of constructing workers' commissions. Potencjalne skrzydło w obozie dyktatury, które może pójść na kompromis. And it also contained this idea that within the camp of the dictatorship there is a faction that can agree to go and strike a compromise with us. I wreszcie przekonania, że pewne sektory w kościele katolickim gotowe są podjąć współpracę z opozycją demokratyczną. And then, and finally, my conviction that the, there are also certain groups in the Catholic Church uh, that would be willing to uh, begin collaboration with uh, the opposition. Ja zapamiętałem taki film według scenariusza Jorge Sempruna. I remember the film that was made uh, with a scenario written by Jorge Semprun, La, the La Guerre Fini. I w tym filmie jest pokazane zebranie kierownictwa komunistycznej partii Hiszpanii w Paryżu. And in this film uh, you see a scene where the, the, the direction or the leadership of the Communist Party of Spain uh, meets in Paris. I tam uh, siedzi taki 
czterech aparatczyków, kompletnie oderwanych od świata i mówią strajk generalny, będzie strajk generalny, będzie strajk generalny. And there are these four apparatchiks that are sitting there, completely uh, detached from the world, and they are saying, General Strike, General Strike, General Strike. And this was a signal that one has to think differently. And at the same time, it was a question of attitude towards violence. W drodze hiszpańskiej niezwykle ważne by było to, że opozycja hiszpańska nie szła dr dr drogą etarras, nie szła drogą te te terrorystów babaskich. For me, what was extraordinarily important is was in the Spanish model of transition that the Spanish opposition did not adopt the confrontational strategy of the terrorists. Więc w osiemdziesiątym w roku to powiedziałem w polskiej telewizji. I said this in Polish television 1989. Że my musimy iść drogą Hiszpanii, a nie drogą Iranu. That we have to follow the Spanish way, not the Iran way of the revolution. się wściekli na mnie. Everybody was very angry. Adam, would you mind if I broke in there? Because we have only a little time until the... You see, the last... Please. The last sentence. His English, by the way, is very good. I don't know why he's doing this to you. Playing for time like a Trotskyist. Yes, of course, of course. I wtedy Felipe González dał wywiad dla Le Nouvelle Observateur. And this was the time when Felipe González gave an interview for Le Nouvelle Observateur. To są bardzo ciekawe myśli, powiedział Felipe. These are very interesting thoughts, said Felipe. Ale ja pierwsze słyszę, że jest jakaś hiszpańska droga. But it is for the first time that I hear that there is a Spanish way of transition. Thank you. Beautiful. Now, the, the, the tyranny of, of time is not one that uh, can be voluntarily um, abolished, even though it is apparently true that towards the end of the Paris Commune, uh, the fighters and the defenders began to shoot at the clocks in the hope that they could slow down the counter-revolution. And so I'm only going to have time before yielding to the masses to ask each of you, and I think I may start randomly, um, this question. Many people in the world at present declare themselves revolutionaries because they think they can erect a kingdom of heaven on earth, or hell on earth if you prefer, by following a, a holy uh, war, uh, a holy revolution, a theocratic or religious revolution. I would like to ask you all, I'll start with you, sir, if I may, whether you yourselves have any belief in what was once called liberation theology, or any view of this interpretation of social change. And I'll have to ask you to be terse, because 9.30, it's the people's turn. All right. <clears throat> Since I started on this note of counter-revolution, again, it's a very interesting state of affairs, and two kinds of counter-revolutionary forces are fighting one another. One is an Islamic uh, revolution, the other is Christian. Uh, one is voicing the despair of the downtrodden, of the earth 
downtrodden inclusively by those who are voicing these complaints. And also you have the kind of religious revolution in this very country, um, where indeed divinely inspired politicians are indeed leading a democratic country in a war that is also a war of salvation. It's a different in nature. It's different in nature. Of course, many salvations can be imagined. And indeed, uh, a doctrine of individual salvation and rectitude that is characteristic in this Protestant country by the neoconservative revolution is different. It's different from a belief in martyrdom and collective uh, 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 punishment for oneself, for one's own community, and, and for the infidel. Nevertheless, isn't it quite interesting that nowadays the crushing majority of those who are dying by violence are dying exactly for the same reasons as people died 6,000 years ago? These reasons were religious, racial, demographic, and territorial. The progress is tremendous, don't you think? <laughs> it's really, you know, we did it. We did it. It's really, you know, and when, I, when, I, when I'm in America, which is a country for the simple perverse reason I love very much, uh, but, um, you know, it's very interesting that this is an optimistic country where people always are talking one down and one uh, presents a, a, a scenario of doom, as is my want as a European. And, and, you know, the thing is that this unshakable faith in success, while what we can observe is the dispiriting uniformity of the causes of suffering, you know, enlightenment and science and technological revolutions and freedom and pilgrim fathers and what have you, and people are still being murdered for the same reasons. I find that very, very boring. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yes. Um, <laughs> very well, um, Jokonda, when, uh, when Salman was in Nicaragua writing his Jaguar Smile, and when I was there around the same time, there were a couple of poetic-type priests. I remember uh, Ernesto Cardinal and others who were trying to make a marriage between uh, religion and revolution. What do you make of that uh, effort now, or do you think that um, liberation theology is a tautology or um, oxymoron? Yeah, well, liberation... Tersely. Liberation theology was uh, abolished practically by the, by, by the church, by the same church. They were punished, you know, these priests that, were, that had the, the, took the side of the, of the poor. And now it's, be, I think religion in the case of Latin America has become a militancy for very conservative people. And the upper classes are the most uh, militantly religious and, and uh, in a very conservative way. And uh, it's no longer uh, a liberation kind of attitude. I think for me, it's a kind of hopelessness, you know, that I find in this time, in this period of history, I find that we are all possessed by a kind of hopelessness that, uh, that maybe, you know, what, I, what, what I, we were saying before, this uh, lack of paradigms, lack of 
vision of creativity or imagination, however you want to call it, that uh, where religion becomes a refuge, becomes tradition, becomes the known uh, quantity that people take refuge to, because you know it's a they go back to this very close family, familiar, familiar uh, individualistic uh, salvation. You know, if I cannot save anybody else, I will save myself. I think becomes a counter uh, a, a, a movement that counters the natural uh, tendency. I think of people of being in a commune, in a communal situation, in a collective uh, kind of social uh, interaction. Bravo. Well, now, thank you very much. Now, the, the, the guillotine, that special enforcer of 1789 revolution, has now come down. We've just gone past 9.30, so I yield to you now, uh, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters. You can, do we have a roving microphone deal, something like that? I should have known the answer to this before yes. I got up here. We do. Look for the mic. Be aware of the following. If you make a speech, I will shut you up. If you ask a boring question, I will instruct people not to answer it. Okay. Um, I would welcome a question that I couldn't answer myself, which is what the members of the panel believe is true of the American Revolution. Uh, I didn't have time for it. Uh, I'd welcome that question, otherwise you'll make me ask it. And other than that, it's yeah, your turn. So can I recognize, well, Mr. President. Hi, Christopher. Um, By the way, retiring peacefully without having to be... Would, uh, no, I'm, I'm now actually the ex-president, so I'm spending more time with my family and, and uh, developing my presidential library. But, but if I could just follow up on this question of religion, because I think it needs more exploration. In solidarity, as I understand it, the role of the Catholic Church was very important and supportive. Uh, in, in the case of the Franco regime, the role of the Catholic Church was extremely negative, non-supportive. In the case of Nicaragua, the role of some Catholics was extremely supportive and of others, like for example the Archbishop and so on, very non-supportive. Um, it seems to be worth exploring this strange relationship of religion and revolution a little more. Sometimes it's been constructive, sometimes it's been destructive, and I'd like just to hear everybody speak to that a little more. Well, I think, uh, Susanna, if you would like to begin, because you didn't get a chance to answer that question when it was less well phrased by me. Yo creo que, que no hay que generalizar en el caso del papel de la Iglesia. Si tomamos uh, el mismo ejemplo español, durante la dictadura, estoy de acuerdo con Salman Raste, si tomamos el ejemplo de la Iglesia Católica en los últimos años del franquismo y en el inicio de la transición, el papel de la Iglesia fue claramente positivo, es decir, yo creo que sería decisivo. Todo el movimiento obrerista estuvo uh, infiltrado por la Iglesia y toda la teoría del Concilio Vaticano II se puso en marcha en los elementos más progresistas de, eh, de la Iglesia Católica en España, como Enrique Vicente Tarancón. Eh, y si tomamos otro ejemplo, Chile y Argentina, veremos cómo el papel de la Iglesia en los momentos de la dictadura en Chile fue 
muy positivo y fue violentamente reprimido y en cambio en Argentina se alió desde el primer momento con la dictadura hasta el punto de que era un elemento fundamental eh, en esa dictadura y los fines que perseguía estaban íntimamente relacionados con esa adquisición y purificación de la nueva alma cristiana occidental. I think that you really shouldn't uh, generalize when you talk about the role of the church. Uh, for example, let's take the case of Spain. If we, if we talk about the role of the church during the dictatorship, uh, I would be in agreement uh, with uh, Salman uh, Rushdie, but if we look at the final years of the Frankist regime and the beginning of the transition, the role of the church was clearly positive. Um, the, whole, the entire workers' movement was infiltrated by the church and the ideas of Vatican II uh, were uh, manifest in the most progressive sectors of the church and in uh, the naming of Enrique de Tarancón as archbishop. And now if we look on the other hand at Chile and Argentina, we can see that on the one hand in Chile, the church pay, played a very positive role. They spoke out against the dictatorship and were uh, persecuted for it. And on the other hand, in Argentina, they allied themselves with the dictatorship. Uh, they were a fundamental element of the dictatorship, and they were intimately responsible for the concept of the purification of the new Western Christian soul. Okay, Adam, yeah. Yeah. could you? <laughs> Still pretending you can't do it. W 77 roku książkę pod tytułem Kościół Lewica Dialog. In 1977 I wrote a book Church Left and the Dialogue. I tak książka była projektem pewnego przewartościowania antyklerykalnej and what this book attempted to do was to uh, turn around the uh, paradigm of anti-clerical thinking in uh, Polish left. In, in in 1994, five years after the Polish Revolution, I wrote an essay, The Church, the Right and the Monologue. I y, to jest właściwie moja odpowiedź na pytanie Salmana Razdi. And this is my answer to Salman Razdi's question. Kościół w Polsce dzisiaj jest popodzielony. Today church in Poland is divided. Jest silne skrzydło fundamentalistyczne, populistyczne, takie właściwie ksenofobiczne, które tęskni za jakąś formą teokracji. Jest skrzydło oświecone, które sympatyzuje ale istota rzeczy polega na tym, że to jest naprawdę spór dwóch wizji Kościoła. Kościół 
Konstantyński. To jest kościół, który ma władzę w państwie. Konstantyn-like church is the one that has power in the state. Po, po Konstantynie przyszedł Julian Apostata. But then after Konstantyny, Julian Apostate came. Kościół ut, ut, utracił władzę. And church lost its power. Więc ko, kościół juliański jest kościołem martyrologicznym, heroicznym. So the Julian church is martyrological. It's a... Ale to jest kościół, który cały czas myśli o tym, jak sięgnąć po tą władzę, jak zwracać tę władzę. This is a church that always thinks how to grab this power, how to take it back. I e, paradoks heroicznego kościoła w epoce komunizmu so polegał właśnie na tym. Of heroic church at the time of communism uh, resided exactly in this. On heroicznie walczył o prawa człowieka. It, it fought heroically for human rights. Bo to była walka o jego prawa. Because it was a, a struggle for its own right. Zgodnie z asadą. Jak ty jesteś u władzy, to ja się domagam dla siebie praw, bo taka jest twoja zasada. But Jak ja jestem u, u władzy, to ja ciebie pozbawiam praw, bo taka jest moja zasada. According to the principle that when you are in power, somebody else is in power, I request rights, because this is your principle of functioning. And but what I am in power, I'm going to deny you rights, because this is the way I'm thinking. Okay, very good. Um, excellent. Um, by the way, I think I can understand every word he says too, but. Uh, and I know Salman has heard the word apostate before in his life, but never pronounced quite that gutturally, I think. Um, now, in the interest of time, because my other two panelists have in a way answered this question, I call upon the first person at the opposite mic. Um, Be terse and, if possible, ironic. I'll, I'll just quote back Mr. Uh, Tomas, who said, uh, my mistake is to commit the same mistakes that my ancestors committed. Uh, which seems to me to speak to um, the role that culture has in, uh, in revolutions. In other words, can one really get away from whatever cultural uh, tendencies there are in a society? Does, what, what really changes in, uh, in a revolution? Can one really get away from those things? Right. Briefly. Yes. Uh, um, look, uh, one... Uh, I, I don't have a, a complete theoretical stance on this, but what I found terribly surprising, how superficial these things really are, how easily cultural traditions change, how traditions of old and views that seem so solid are dispersed in no time at all, and um, just to make a link to what has been discussed before here. You know, as opposed to Adam Michnik, I come from an extremely irreligious, irreligious country, and um, where indeed uh, uh, committed Christians are a not very well-loved minority and laughed at, and, and, and to totally misunderstood. Well, this is not paradise either. Because why Christians are not very liked in a country like Hungary or Austria or, or quite a few others? Because people in general do not trust big ideas of any kind. They do not trust protestations of innocence 
and protestations of inner goodness of whoever speaks. So, so I come from a skeptical country that is not, well, could be perhaps, uh, you know, a uh, very good vacation location for a Pole or for a Texan. <laughs> but, but it's not the land of happiness. Sounds bliss, I must say. Right, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. I I know. It I isn't, it. it isn't. Uh, nothing is. <laughs> but you see, because you see, this kind of extreme mistrust is a perverse uh, flip to the other side of the coin of naivete. If you believe everything you're told, you're naive. But if you don't believe anything that you're told, you are also naive. So a negative, a negative fanaticism of unbelief that is the phase we are going through and which is very well known against, again from the Weimar period of uh, Central Europe, uh, makes collective, collective action very difficult. And sometimes I do envy religious activists for their readiness to act and readiness to get together and not to be too proud and too individualistic and get things done. Well, I come from a society where this doesn't exist and, uh, and I can understand how can you fall from one extreme to another. So I have a two-part question that'll be quick. Can you, can you produce the voice a bit more? I have a two-part question that will be quick. Uh, the first part is that doesn't religion give hope to the religious the way socialism gives hope to socialists? Does not religion give hope to the religious the way socialism gives hope to socialists? And the second part is if that's true, then we're competing for hope against each other sometimes. Um, so what role can humor play? in getting us to sort of create, to sit at a table together and say, you know, we all want to be hopeful, we all want to believe in something, but uh, how can we sit together so that we don't kill each other when we create a revolution to sort of get the things that we want? Does this tempt any of you? Neither well, did, no, neither did I. The but, question um, was addressed to me and the question was addressed to me, so I'll answer you very, very briefly, and so in Please. two words. A, no. B, don't know. <laughs> Next. Mart? Martin. This is uh, Hubert Martin. I have a question to Mr. Uh, Michnik. Dear sir, you've said that the revolution ends, and at the end, that day-to-day -day politics begins. And my question is, in the past 15 years, why have you been always siding with the communists, protecting their political and economic interests? And why have you never openly asked to trial the high-ranking communists? I, I hate to ask you, to, did anyone else get that? I, I think I understand. You should be... Shall I ask you the you question? You seem to be our dragoman, not just in the I finno ugric language group, <laughs> but in the uh, other matters too. Maybe I can, I can no, explain I what I meant. No, I can't answer your question, but I can explain your question to Mr. Mechnik, if you want. Why didn't I demand uh, trials? Because I didn't... I'm not crazy. <laughs> 
Ja mówię o hiszpańskiej drodze. When I speak about Spanish road, hiszpańska droga polega właśnie na tym, że ostajemy sobą, ale przestajemy się zabijać i zamykać do więzień. The Spanish, the principle of Spanish road was in to my mind uh, an agreement that we all remain the way we were but we stop killing each other and putting each other into prisons na tym samym popolegała transformacja w południowej afryce this was the same principle that governed transformation in south africa domaganie się procesów dla ludzi którzy w wyniku negocjacji przy okrągłym Setole pokojowo zrezygnowali z dyktatury i się poddali we weryfikacji demokratycznych wyborów, by było absurde. To demand trials for people who in peaceful negotiations gave up their power and agreed to subject themselves to the judgment of free elections would be a total absurdity. Oczywiście, ja nie mówię w tej chwili o, o, o przestępstwach, o zbrodniach. Of course, I'm not speaking here about criminals, about those who committed crimes. A to ja tego się nie musiałem domagać, bo takich rzeczy jest prokuratura i sądy. But I didn't have to call for such things, because these are matters that the Ministry of Justice and courts uh, are uh, after. Jeżeli prokuratura i sądy ulegają presjom polityków czy publicystów nawet tak sympatycznych jak ja, to to jest koniec państwa prawa. When when Ministry of Justice and courts are subject and yield to the pressure of journalists even as sympathetic as I am, this is the end of law. You haven't really spoken much about the actual blood and guts of revolution specifically violence and revolution. And I'm curious as to all the panelists, um, under what circumstances do you think violence is justified, especially in light of the fact that, as we all recognize, there's a revolution and a counter-revolution, and often you know, never uh, a full resolution in the minds of everyone as to which uh, revolutions are justified and which ones are not. Very good. If that, if that question was understood, which I hope it was, I think Adam has already answered it, if I don't insult him by saying so. And I think I should ask you, Jaconda, first, to, and then you, Susanaria, second, to comment on this. The question is whether or not violence can be accomplished without revolution. Uh, so, revolution. <laughs> you know, okay, you know the joke about the guy at Ellis Island who's asked, do you favor the overthrow of the United States government by force or violence? He, he pauses for a long time, he's Swedish, and he says, violence. Um, I metaphasized the questioner's question. He, he wanted to know whether what your view was about whether change, really, not, let's not just say revolution, whether political change is possible by peaceful means alone, and what the other condition would be. I, I hope you'll take that as a fair paraphrase. And just, and just under what circumstances do you think violence would be justified, if ever? Well, I think definitely uh, change can come about peacefully and, and you know it's happening uh, and you know for example in Latin America at the moment you're seeing some very important changes happening peacefully like uh, the case of Bolivia 
where Evo Morales has, was just, you know, inaugurated as president, which is a, an unprecedented um, event in Bolivian history. Uh, even in Nicaragua, when the Sandinistas lost the election, it was the first time in our history that there was a peaceful transition to another government. Um, I think violence, unfortunately, has to do with uh, no alternatives. You know, I think people uh, tend to resort to violence when they have to, one, one cause of violence is occupation. I think occupation, colonialism, loss of independence, those are things that usually generate <coughs> violence. And then uh, the, the, the absence of political alternatives to, uh, to, get, to be free, to uh, people who are oppressed and lack the alternatives to be able to liberate themselves resort to violence. Uh, and I think uh, in those cases, I would say, for example, in the case of Nicaragua, I think the, the fact that we had to resort to violence was justified uh, because we were uh, under an incredible amount of violence every day. And it was a survival issue. It was a like self-defense, if you want. Mm -hmm. um, if, I, if I may yep. say, if I'm... I'm going to call on the judge next. Right. I nominated uh, him already, but are just, going to be just, really, yes, really, 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 About the possible disadvantages of peaceful transition. A few years ago, one of the former prime ministers of Hungary had been discovered to have been a high-ranking officer of the Communist Secret Services. And uh, a few naive people, including myself, called uh, on him to resign. He did not resign, and his popularity shot up with 20% in the polls because the public perceived him as somebody who has been unjustly persecuted by self-righteous intellectuals whom we know so well. Yo creo que sí se puede conseguir un cambio político, una revolución, incluso sin violencia, aunque la historia demuestra lo contrario. Cuando se pone el ejemplo del, del camino español, se olvida que la transición del año 76 en adelante no se consiguió sin violencia. Había una violencia terrorista y de grupos paramilitares de extrema derecha importantísima. Eran casi diarios los atentados terroristas que habían, tanto a favor como en contra y con el único fin de hacer saltar el, el proceso de eh, negociación. Yo creo que hoy día, y si no estamos de acuerdo, tendríamos que dudar mucho de, del futuro de la propia humanidad, deberíamos empezar a pensar en que la fuerza del derecho tiene algún sentido. Si no, creo que estamos haciendo un papel bastante pobre y cualquier discusión al respecto pues será a sí mismo pobre. Es decir, si no nos creemos que el derecho puede superar a la violencia y que el diálogo y el entendimiento puede ser posible, mal nos va. ¿Cuál es el límite de la violencia en estos procesos? Yo pondría el ejemplo de Irak, que no salió todavía esta noche y creo que, 
que es importante traerlo a colación. El límite de cualquier acto de violencia siempre está en el sacrificio o la muerte de víctimas civiles. Podemos discutir cualquier otra circunstancia, pero ahí tendríamos que estar de acuerdo como una base mínima que no se puede traspasar en ningún caso, ni por ninguna razón. Uh, I do believe that uh, political change can be achieved without violence, although history might demonstrate the contrary. When we cite the example, or when this example of the Spanish way is cited, it is forgotten that the transition of 1976 onward was not achieved without violence. There was a tremendous degree of terrorist violence and violence from groups of the extreme right both in favor and against the negotiating process, and their only aim was to sabotage it. I believe that today uh, we would, if, if we don't want to doubt the future of humanity, we should start to think that the rule of law has some meaning. Um, if we don't believe that law can overcome violence. If we don't believe that dialogue is possible, then our situation is pretty unfortunate. And as far as the limits for violence, I would cite the case of Iraq. Now, Iraq didn't come up this evening so far, but I think it's an example that is worth um, alluding to. The limit of violence is at the point where there is a sacrifice of civilian victims. This circumstance, the other circumstances could be adduced as uh, the limit of violence, but I think here we would need to be in agreement on that minimum basis. When there is a sacrifice of civilian victims, this is a limit which cannot be transgressed under any circumstances. Um. I've had the notification from our convener that we have one more question, and I'm going to usurp it for my own question, and I don't think you'll find uh, that it's a disappointing one, and I think it's one that has to be asked in any case. There have been revolutions, revolutionary years, such as 1848, uh, that are common, apparently, to all countries, certainly to Poland and Hungary. Um, there, have, uh, there have been other years that have their own grandeur, such as 1956, that apply to Hungary alone. And there have been claimants like 1917 that claim to be universal revolutions. Uh, also, 19, uh, uh, late 1940s with the People's Republic of China and later with Cuba. But if we assume these are all in the past or uh, are all particular to one country individually, that leaves us with only two revolutions that claim to be universal in their application. And these are the French Revolution of 1789 and the American Revolution of 1776. And I'd like to ask all the panelists to tell us which of these revolutions they think is the one that has the most life left in it. And I could, uh, I will take a volunteer. I feel I'm unable to direct uh, questions in this country. 
I think the revolution that has the most possibility right now in the world is the women's revolution. <laughs> Because, you know, in the French Revolution, it was uh, libertad, igualdad, fraternidad, but libertad, igualdad has never happened. And I think equality has not happened. And uh, freedom has been more a freedom for the market than, you know, uh, it's been a... And I think for women, especially now in the world, I would say that one of the biggest revolutions that we never talk about in the 20th century was the beginning of the women's revolution. Because it, I was talking about culture, Charlie was talking about culture, a question. Uh, I think culturally it's been the event that has marked uh, a very profound cultural change which has affected the life of each and everybody. Uh, and it's a revolution that I think also uh, is, needs to be finished in the countries where religion, you know, the, it also links with the other discussion of uh, the oppression of women through religion is something that is, in my eyes, intolerable. And if uh, the world is tolerating all of this, because it's women, and so I think that's one revolution that we are missing and that we need to carry out. Perfecto. Perfecto, Joconda, and also thank you for a consummation that I probably should have invited uh, in any case. Uh, who would like to pronounce next? Susanoria. Sí, yo creo que de todas las revoluciones se aprende algo. Evidentemente de la revolución eh, francesa como germen de todas las demás revoluciones y de la revolución americana. Pero yo me inclino por actualizarlas ambas y apostar por la revolución, por la paz, por la paz, por la paz del derecho, la paz de la concordia y la paz de la lucha por esas libertades que, habiendo sido principios revolucionarios, la, las hemos olvidado en aras al practicismo, al pragmatismo y a la poca credibilidad en el propio sistema que decimos defender. Por lo tanto, aunque sea muy utópico, y antes se hablaba de la utopía, yo creo que es tiempo de sustituir la razón de la fuerza por la fuerza de la razón y del derecho. Esa es la revolución pendiente y esa es por la que yo apuesto. I think you lose something from every revolution, uh, both the French Revolution and the American Revolution, um, but uh, I think we should update these revolutions and I think one should talk about a revolution for peace. Uh, the peace of law, the peace of harmony, the peace of the struggle for those liberties, those freedoms that having, had, having been revolutionary principles have been forgotten uh, in, on behalf of practicality and uh, the credibility of one's own system. This may sound utopian, but I believe that it's time to replace the reason of force with the force of reason. That is the revolution that we have pending today.
if, if I may be serious for a moment. Um, well, it had to come sometime. Right. Uh, why was the French Revolution unique? It was unique because it was preceded by 70 years of the creation of a counterculture. A counterculture that went against all the convictions of humankind, that destroyed the foundations of religion, that destroyed the belief in a natural hierarchy between human beings, that destroyed the belief in the unchanging nature of humans, and destroyed the naive belief in progress, if you remember Rousseau's first treatise. And you all remember it. And uh, this is inimaginable. This won't happen again. The unique possibility of a subaltern population to create more or less unbothered a counterculture that goes against the grain of whatever that is official, and there are 70 years going on without the ruling class and society really taking action against it, this is in the age of television is unthinkable. And this is why the French Revolution has nothing to offer us and nothing to teach us. Not because, because we are more clever, but we, because we are dumber. Um, would anyone, <laughs> would our last uh, comrade care to say a good word for the founding fathers, the counterculture of the Enlightenment and Poor old 1776, or have I been failing to find the G spot in this question somewhere? <laughs> you've got you've got what's on the clock, comrade. And then I'm very sorry we have to divide, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. Ja wszystkie rewolucje kocham i wszystkich się boję. I love all the revolutions and I'm afraid of them all. Ja kocham kontrkulturę. I love a counterculture uh, of French Enlightenment thought. Ale ja zastanawiam się, ja, jaka istnieje intymna więź między to, tą kontrkulturą, która wychowała Robespierre'a i, i, i gilotyną, której Robespierre był sponsorem. And but and but I'm always thinking what's the relationship between this counterculture that uh, brought up Robespierre and Guillotine, uh, of which Guillotine, uh, Robespierre was a sponsor. Jacobini mówili braterstwo. Uh, Jacobins were saying fraternity. Ale co to znaczyło? But what did it mean? Bądź moim bratem, albo cię zabiję. Słamon frère, ou je te tue. Be, be my brother, or I will kill you. Rewolucja amerykańska. American Revolution. Była dużo bardziej skromna. Was much more modest. E, 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 ojcowie założyciele founding fathers e, mieli po, po, po poczucie, że ludzie nie są aniołami. E, understood that human beings are not like angels. E, Blaise Pascal opowiadał, że, że człowiek nie jest ani aniołem, ani bydlęciem, ale kiedy chce 
udawać anioła staje się bydlęciem. Pascal used to say that the human being is not an angel or a beast, but when a human being tries to pretend that he or she is an angel, then he or she becomes a beast. Ja lubię rewolucję amerykańską. I like American Revolution. Bo rewolucja amerykańska stworzyła projekt dla, dla takich ludzi jak ja. Because American Revolution was a proposition for people like myself. Grzesznych, sinful, niedoskonałych, imperfect, którzy się lubią zjeść, who, who like to eat, lubią wypić no. and drink. I nie chcą być aniołami. And do not want to be like angel. Ja, ja nie jestem przekonany, czy obecna administracja w Waszyngtonie do dobrze, czy tak samo jak ja interpretuję na nauki amerykańskiej rewolucji. I am not sure if the current administration in Washington well or like myself interprets the principles of American Revolution. I tak sobie myślę, że, 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 że czasem byłoby nie nieźle, gdyby w ramach y, y, modlitwy. And I sometimes think that it would be perhaps good if from time to time during the prayer. Odczytywano tam Jeffersona, Madisona albo Adamsa. Dziękuję. In, in the White House, Jefferson, Madison or Adams would be read as well. Brawo. Well, uh, brothers and sisters, I consider myself to have been very fortunate to have been present for this discussion. Um, I hope you are as glad that you came as we are that you took the trouble, and I hope you'll show your appreciation to our revolutionary and democratic panelists in the customary way. The New York welcome. Thank you. Fantastic. We have to stay in touch, huh? Oh, <laughs>